0: The most iconic part of uh, the Home Alone movie is, of course, the screams of Kevin McAllister. Uh, That's how you know that you're watching uh, Home Alone. If there's just a small clip of it and you see the scream, you immediately know what movie uh, you're watching. In that particular scene, the scream is because he comes face to face for the first time with the loner neighbor next door that he's apparently never met, uh, never talked to, If if you've forgotten... Uh, The lead-up to this particular scene, uh, on the night when all of the family's in the house and everything's a little crazy before they go on their trip to Paris, um, Kevin is looking out the window with his older brother and his cousin, and they see this neighbor who is shoveling his driveway and putting salt out uh, for the snow. And Kevin's older brother tells him this horrible story about this man, these terrible things that he did in his past and painted him basically as this cruel, mysterious monster that uh, Kevin should stay completely away from or bad things are going to happen. I'll spare you the details. Most of you have seen the movie so uh, you know what he told him. And so Kevin has in his mind all of these horrible impressions of this older man. Now if you've seen the movie you know by the end of the movie we find out none of that is true. That actually the guy is a kind, gracious, caring, old older gentleman who just happens to live next door to Kevin and 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 uh, he has some secrets but no more secrets than any of the rest of us have about his past and truth be known he is himself alone this christmas he is dealing himself with some racial, relational disconnections as well he's carrying his own hurts and his own Burdens. But in Kevin's mind, he doesn't see any of that. He doesn't know any of that. Uh, he only sees this person as someone to stay away from, which brings up a, a, an important thought. I, I think we should consider around this idea of, of not being alone. And it's this, when we're lonely, it can be difficult to see the lonely in other people when we're dealing with our our own set of loneliness, we talked about several kinds of loneliness last uh, Sunday when when we introduced this series. When we're feeling that sense of being disconnected or being left out or being overlooked or unseen, it can be difficult for us to recognize that in other people. Right Here are two people in the scene. Here are two people who meet face-to-face who both are struggling with isolation struggling with being alone, but Kevin can't see that in this other person. In reality, this could have been a very helpful relationship for Kevin. This could have been uh, a very meaningful relationship for Kevin. He could have found security in this relationship, but he's too afraid of the other person. He's not able to look beyond his preconceived ideas, what he's already decided about this other person. We we talked about it a little bit last week, that when you are alone, when you feel a sense of loneliness, whatever degree that is, it can be difficult to reach out and connect to someone else, right? You, You feel burdened by or, or even embarrassed by your sense of loneliness. And so it's very difficult to reach out to someone else. And it's certainly, it's very difficult to try to help someone else. But it's possible that God wants to use the lonely in someone else to help the lonely in you. Right? It's, it's very possible that God's brought people into your life that if you just extended yourself a little bit, it, they would be part of the solution for the disconnect that you feel. Instead, we often run away from those relationships, right? We often run away from strangers. Have you ever run away from somebody like Kevin did? Maybe a stranger that you didn't know, but you had some preconceived ideas by... Some of you... um, You don't even think of strangers when you think of running away. You think of your own family, right? And you think, I run away from people I know, not just people I don't know, and I get it. Family can be difficult, right? Especially holiday season coming up, a lot of family gatherings, people traveling, too many people in one house at one time. Families can be difficult. The thing about families most of the time, though, is at least you know the crazy you're getting with your family. It's a known crazy it's a predictable, you've had experiences together. You've, you you kind of know what to expect versus people that you've never met. Um, l- like Kevin, we sometimes come to other people. We, we come to people that we don't know with preconceived ideas about who they are and what they think and what they mean and where they stand and... Oh, how they're going to react, we, we, we sort of prejudge relationships before we actually have a chance for those relationships to grow, and, and it, of course, it doesn't just happen with strangers, it does happen with family sometimes, uh, for some of us as we're getting ready to go to the holidays, maybe this is part of our defense mechanism, but we're, we've already pre-decided, who we're going to talk to and who we're not going to talk to and who we're going to avoid and what subjects we're going to avoid and how this person might react and how that person might react. We we come to relationships a lot of times with a lot of preconceived ideas. We also live in a time when people seemingly easily and quickly just cut relationships off. I don't know if it's the product of the social media world where unfriending is so easy, but we, especially over the last few years, we're in this time where it just seems so easy to just cut people off, right? Just disappear. Ghosting is a real thing, right? Some of you have experienced. People just disappear from your life without a word and there's no conversation and there's no text and there's no email and there's there's nothing they were there and then you turn around and it's been months since you've seen this person these are real things we talked about the loneliness pandemic last week and and i wonder if this isn't part of the reason that we are so quick to distance ourselves we are so quick it seems to cut off relationships, to walk away from relationships, to avoid maybe the work of relationships or because we don't even see people sometimes. And we're so focused in our life, we're, we're, we're running so quickly in, in our world that we just pass people all the time and never notice them, never see them. <clears throat> the story of Christmas And the life of Jesus overall reminds us that Jesus does not run away screaming from anybody. Like you may want to. There may be people that you want to run away screaming from. Jesus doesn't run away screaming from anybody. He he doesn't assume the worst of anybody. He doesn't attribute the worst of intentions to anybody. He doesn't mischaracterize anybody's past or present, or future. He knows all about us, and rather than running away from us, Christmas reminds us that Jesus runs towards us, that God came to be with us. Jesus doesn't ghost us. The Bible says that he will never leave us or forsake us. He moves towards us, and he moves towards us to stay. He sees us Not through misperceptions of all that we've done wrong. He sees us through grace and mercy and love and second chances and renewal of relationships. And since Jesus sees us that way, maybe we need to see others that way. Maybe our interactions with other people need to be informed more by grace and love and mercy. Informed more by, I do not know everything about this person. I don't know everything that's going on in their life. Just like Kevin with his neighbor. He had no idea who this person was or what he was experiencing them. So instead of seeing people and trying to figure them out explain them or even fix them, we would see people potentially that God is at work in and that God may want to use us as a part of that work. The life of, uh, the life of Jesus, the Christmas story, it, it reminds us that God is often at work in people and places that we would never assume. We would never think to see God there, but again and again and again, the Bible tells the story of God working in unusual places and people that no one guessed. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, one of the prophets foretold of his birth. This is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah writes, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Especially this time of year, Bethlehem is fairly famous, right? We we know Bethlehem. We we especially at Christmas We know where Bethlehem is. We know what happened at Bethlehem. We sing songs about Bethlehem. We sang one this morning, O come, O come to Bethlehem. We sing about Bethlehem. We have Christmas cards with images of Bethlehem. We make nativity scenes that represent what happened in Bethlehem. In 2021, especially at Christmas, Bethlehem is famous. But thousands of years ago, Nobody knew where Bethlehem was. Micah, the prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, describes Bethlehem as being small compared to all of the other places in the Middle East. You are small. You are nothing. Nobody knows where you are. You are insignificant. And yet, out of this insignificant, unknown place would come the Messiah. This is how insignificant Bethlehem was. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, from chapters 13 to 19, God's people have moved into the promised land. They've settled in the promised land, and then they're dividing up the promised land. Joshua 13 through 19 is pretty tough reading. Because it's just boundary markers and cities. Boundary markers and to this group of, uh, to this tribe of Israel, you get this piece of property and here's all the cities in that piece of property. And then the next chapter is the same thing. This tribe, you get this piece of property, here's all the cities. It's kind of tough reading. In Joshua chapter 15, the tribe of Judah is given a particular piece of land, Bethlehem was in the land given to the tribe of Judah. And, and if we were writing this story, if we were writing about the, the property that the tribe of Judah got, we would include Bethlehem probably in the top five cities, right? At least the top ten, because everybody knows Bethlehem. It's that important to us. In Joshua 15, 115 cities are listed within their property line. Guess which city's not even mentioned? Bethlehem. It's not top five. It's not top 10. It's not top 40. It's not top 115. That's how insignificant Bethlehem was when Micah is writing, Nobody Knows You. The, The readers of Micah's letter probably would have had a vague memory that King David's father lived there and David sort of came from that area, but they probably couldn't find it on a map. Bethlehem was nothing. Nobody noticed it. Nobody valued it. After the Christmas story, we hear about Bethlehem in the nativity narrative of the Christmas story. You know how many times Bethlehem is mentioned after the Christmas story? None. Zero. It disappears from the Bible. And Micah says, out of this insignificant, overlooked, nobody noticed, nobody even knew where it was, out of that place, God is going to do something. See, this is what the Bible tells us, that, that God is constantly at work in places and people that we overlook, that we miss, that we pass by, that we never even Notice, you see, what we dismiss, God sees. What, what we avoid, God moves toward. What we run away from, God runs toward. God wants a relationship, not just with the known and the powerful and the, the big. God wants a relationship with those who aren't even seen. Let's read it again. Micah, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Don't skip over that little phrase, for me. This is God speaking. Out of you, out of this insignificant place, someone is coming for God, for me. God said, this is my plant. I'm doing something in places that you don't even see or notice. God uses that same language when David is anointed king. He sends Samuel to anoint David to be the next king in 1 Samuel 16. And this is part of Samuel's instructions. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. It was God's way of saying, this is my plan. The people chose Saul. I'm choosing somebody. And that king was not going to be perfect. But when Micah prophesied about a future king that was to come, he would be a perfect king and perfect Messiah. And God says, he's for me. He's coming out of a place you would not expect. He's not who you thought would be coming. And still today, 2,000 years later, God is doing work for his glory according to his plan in people and places that you and I don't see. It's one of the things we notice over and over again about Jesus' ministry. It was one of the most frustrating things for the disciples because the disciples always wanted to get from point A to point B. They wanted to get from this city to that city as quickly as possible, and Jesus kept stopping to talk to people. Talk to people that the disciples did not care about. Talk to people that the disciples did not think he should be talking about. About they grew so frustrated with Jesus talking to insignificant people. And yet Jesus kept doing it his whole life. John chapter 4. They go into town to buy groceries. When they come back out, Jesus is talking with a woman in the middle of the day at a well. A scandalous woman. A woman who could only come to the well in the middle of the day because nobody else wanted to be there when she was there. And she didn't want to be there when anybody else was there because she was unnoticed and overlooked and dismissed. And Jesus is having a conversation. Jesus sees those that are on the outskirts. Jesus sees those. He moves towards those who are left out and alone. The disciples come back. John describes it this way. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? They had all learned. Right? Just don't ask. I don't know why he's talking to her. Just don't ask. We're going to get a lecture. Just don't. Let him finish. This was their whole life. Jesus, why are we stopping for her? And Jesus, just like his birth, Jesus could have said, Because out of small places that nobody else notices, I'm doing something for me. I'm working my plan. I'm working purposes in the lives of people you don't even notice. And he would stop for blind people and lame people. He would stop for deaf people and lepers. He would stop for a woman caught in adultery that everyone else had abandoned He would stop for people that religious leaders wanted to use as an example. And he would say, no, this is for me, this person I care about. I'm doing something in their lives. At one point, Jesus even tells his followers the place to find him, the place to see him, was really not at the temple, although worship was important. The place that you would encounter Jesus was not in the halls of government of that day, although that has a place. If you wanted to find Jesus, Jesus said, you will find me when you serve the needy and when you clothe the homeless and you feed the hungry You will see me. You will encounter me when you visit prisoners. These these were Jesus' words in Matthew. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I mean, the man born in the small place called Bethlehem said, if you want to find me I'll be in small places. I'll be in broken places. I'll be with hurting people. When you encounter them, you have encountered me, the hungry, the poor, the stranger, he says. The Greek word that gets translated stranger in the New Testament is the word xenos. Stranger, foreigner. There's an English word that we hear quite a bit if you pay attention to news and and politics very much. The the English word that we hear a lot about right now is the word xenophobia. Right, xenophobia. It is fear of the stranger, fear of the foreigner, and we we can debate whether it's used appropriately or if it's used as a political weapon. It's probably both of those in our day and time. But you hear this word a lot. Jesus did not fear the stranger. He did not fear the foreigner. He did not fear the one who was unlike him. He did not fear the one who had a past. He did not fear the one who was broken. He moved toward them. And he says to us, you should invite them in. You should invite them in. You should have compassion for them in the way that I have compassion for you. You see, instead of running away screaming, Jesus moved toward the stranger with compassion because Jesus himself was a stranger to this world Jesus himself was a foreigner to this world Isaiah gives an interesting description of the Messiah <clears throat> we read it often at Christmas but it's it's a description I don't think we pay attention to very often This is Isaiah 53 Who has believed our message <clears throat> and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed It's an amazing description of Jesus, I think primarily because it describes Jesus as being so forgettable, that you could pass Jesus and not even notice him. You could walk by him on the street and not even realize who this person was. He was forgettable. He was like a tender shoot, Isaiah says, like a little sprig coming out of the ground. And who pays attention to that? In the spring, there are thousands, millions of those. Weeds and flowers and small trees. There are tender shoots, sprigs all over the place. You would walk right by and not even notice. He was like a root out of dry ground. Who notices that? A little sprig and in a dry place. What we know is it's not going to make it. So why give any attention to it? Why bother with something that's going to die out quickly? And Isaiah says, this is what the Messiah was like when he came. He was unnoticeable. He blended in in so many ways. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You could miss him. You could walk right by Jesus and miss him. And then this phrase, like one from whom, whom people hide their faces. He was despised. Many people who did recognize him ran the other way. Jesus was utterly forgettable in so many ways to so many people. And yes, he, he launched his ministry and he began to do miracles. And that attracted some people. But as a person, you could miss him. He looked like everybody else. He didn't stand out in any significant way. I mean, you look back through the history books. We know what happened in the first century in the Middle East. We, We know this story, but you don't find a lot of accounts of this. I mean, you have to look hard. They're there, but you have to look hard for these accounts. Jesus lived and died in this little obscure region of the world and went unnoticed. Unnoticed. And here's the tragedy. The tragedy is he still goes unnoticed by so many people today. The Savior of the world has come to be with us, and he's unnoticed. He's not seen. He's too small in the minds of some people. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? Well, I would tell you, first of all, Make sure you see Jesus this Christmas. Notice him. Not just for a service, not not just for a day or Christmas Eve, or not just for a moment. See that the Savior has come, not just to the world. The Savior's come to you. The Savior's come to be with you, to never leave you, to never forsake you. Don't miss Jesus. Some people are so consumed by their lives so busy with their schedules, they just keep walking past. When my kids were, were younger, small, um, my kids are 18 to 22 now if you're, if you're new, um, but when, when they were little girls, um, I was in charge of them for an evening, which is always a dangerous thing. My wife was out with friends, and um, I was running the house, And for just a moment, I lost sight of them and turned away. And when when I turned back, um, they were standing on the piano bench and their grubby little hands were in the nativity set that's on top of our piano bench, which might not have alarmed me except the previous year, Joseph had been decapitated in a very similar scene at our house. And I really didn't want any other nativity personnel to be disfigured this year. So I yelled at my children, which I don't do often, you know, because I'm the perfect parent. But I yelled at my children in this moment. And they heard me, and they climbed down from the piano bench. And I was grateful that no nativity personnel were further injured. And it was bedtime, so I put them to bed. And I went in to the bedroom and, and did some reading. And my wife got home. And my wife knows everything about her house, like all wives do. And she can sense when there's been a disturbance in the force. And she knew it immediately. And she walked into where I was. And she asked me this question. It's the first thing she said to me after she got home. She said, where is Jesus? And I'm a pastor. So if you ask me where Jesus is, I said, babe. Jesus is in our hearts. (laughs) What do you mean? She said, no, I mean Jesus from the nativity scene. And then I I realized my two little monsters at the time had done something with Jesus. And we looked everywhere for Jesus. Upstairs, downstairs, basement, outside. No, gee, we couldn't find Jesus. Cushions out of the couches, under the dining room table. No Jesus. Day goes by, week goes by, two weeks goes by, Christmas Eve's coming, we don't have Jesus. We're praying, God help us find Jesus. I, right before Christmas Eve, my wife comes to, to, to the room where I am and she announces that Jesus had been found. She had found Jesus, which we've been praying for her that she would find Jesus. She did. She finds Jesus. And and what happened? was when the girls reached their hands into the nativity scene, they had pushed Jesus to the back. They didn't actually take Jesus out. They pushed him to the back behind some of the other figures, and he was there the whole time. We were just walking by him for a week, looking for him, trying to find him. We walked by him day after day after day, and Jesus is right there, and we don't see Jesus. And I think some of us do that in our lives. Emmanuel, God has come to be with us. He is here. We are not waiting for him anymore. Christ has come. He has come. He is here. And and I want to caution you as you're going through this season, as you're going about your life, that you don't keep walking past him. You don't keep overlooking him. You don't keep relegating him to the back So he won't intrude on your life. Jesus has come to be your savior, your king, to be with you. So the first thing I would say today is make sure you see Jesus this Christmas. So the thing I would say is if you feel like a stranger this Christmas, Jesus sees you. If you feel on the outside, Jesus knows what that's like and he sees you. The Bible says that Christ was crucified outside the gate so that outsiders could know him. If you, f- if you feel unnoticed, if you feel disconnected, and all of us through these past few years, we've probably wrestled with some of that. If you feel isolated, If you feel ghosted by other people, I'm telling you, if you feel like a stranger, Jesus sees you, he knows you, he knows what it's like to be there, and he is drawn close to you. He wants to be invited into your life. He's the stranger that all of us need to invite into our lives. If that's you, he sees you. And thirdly, I want to encourage us to see Jesus at work in other people this Christmas. In the small places, in the people on the margins of our lives, the people that we would normally walk past, run away from, distance ourselves from, maybe there's a Bethlehem in their life. Maybe there's a small place in their life where Christ wants to come, and he wants you to be a part of that. He wants you to see them as loved and recipients of God's grace. He wants you to move towards them in the way that Jesus would move towards them. Can we fix the way we look at people this Christmas? Not with baggage and background, but as people for whom Christ came. We decided to help you with that this year. When when you go out of the auditorium, over to the left, there's a table with little cardboard boxes that look like gingerbread houses. These are for you to take. Take one, take two, take three. Don't take them all. Take a few. Pick up a few on the way out, and then ask God who needs, who needs to get that from you. Take it home. Put something in it. Like cookies, pastries, baked goods, $1,000, keys to a new car, whatever. Put, some, put something in it. Something in it. Fill it up. And then say to someone this Christmas, I see you. I want you to know I love you. You're not alone. I just wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. You'll figure out the words, right? The relationship will determine the words. Maybe you don't need to say you're not alone to everybody. Don't make it weird. Just whatever the relationship is, whatever words you need to use, maybe you don't need to use any words, those those are for you. Just as an expression of you and our church to say to the world around us, God does not intend for us to be alone. He came for us. He came to be with us, to walk with us. You're not alone. Jesus drew near to us at Christmas. Let's draw near to one another. Let's walk with one another. God, I pray that you would stir us. I pray that you would help us see people as you see them. We all have people in our lives like Kevin's neighbor. We've kind of formulated a a backstory, a history. We've already decided what they think of us or what they think of you or what they think of life issues. We keep them at a distance. We, we walk by as quickly as we can, but maybe something's going on in their heart that we don't know about. Maybe there are hurts that they've never revealed to us. We know that you would stop we, because we, we read it in the life of Jesus. He just kept stopping for what looked like insignificant people, but they weren't insignificant to him. Give us that heart. Give us those eyes. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.